Well, good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson, and I'm the senior pastor here at South Suburban. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, we um, have been in this series uh, after the resurrection, and we're looking at uh, how God has been faithful. And specifically, I want to focus a little bit about how God has been faithful today uh, in your life, in my life, and in the life of South Suburban Church. Um, we're uh, back in the book of Revelation today, and if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. Uh, now, a few weeks ago, I preached on Revelation chapter 7. Was that what it was? Was it? Just checking. Revelation chapter 7. Notice I've skipped everything from chapter 7 to chapter 21. And we're in 21 today. Uh, Revelation is the last book of your New Testament. Chapter 21 is the next to the last chapter. Uh, so it's easy to find. And uh, I, uh, this is oftentimes called the funeral passage. Uh, that is, is that if you uh, have a family member who passes away and you meet with Pastor Joe, like he said last week, he's the funeral pastor. And uh, if you meet with Pastor Joe and you don't have any other scriptures, <clears throat> I can guarantee you that about half the time Revelation 21 is going to show up. And you'll see why as we read together Revelation 21 beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and women. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is God's Word. May God give us the wisdom we need to understand and to apply that which God's Spirit will teach us this day. Amen. I have a regular morning ritual that I do <clears throat> when I get up. No one speaks to me before uh, the first cup of coffee. I don't know if you're that way. And one of the things uh, uh, that I like to do is I read the paper. And I actually read the paper on my iPad, to which my children always come to me and they say, can, can we get on uh, you know, an electronic device? And I say, no. And they say, but you're on one. I'm like, yeah, but I'm reading the news, not playing a game. And that's not completely true because I get a lot of enjoyment out of reading the news because I invariably see things that make me laugh. I want you to know, if you have learned anything here today at South Suburban Church, that arranging a death of a loved one isn't easy. <laughs> Not to mention it's illegal. But thankfully there are companies and services here to help you every step of the way. I have a feeling the editor lost his job the next day. 
But it gets better because some things really struggle in my heart, you know, increase in population. And they have found that state population to double by 2040, and they've even found the cause. Babies are to blame. I knew somebody was to blame. And then if you can, in your mind, you have to picture it. Southern genteel lady sitting on the front porch of a white house with her big hat on and a big old glass of either lemonade or iced tea, and she says something along these lines, Mississippi's literacy program shows improvement. Now, you need to understand, I don't fault this person at all because that's exactly how you'd say it, Mississippi, not Mississippi, but I am a little bit concerned about the literacy program of that state. Austin, our worship associate, this was his favorite headline. We hate math, says four in ten Americans, a majority. (laughs) The first service took them longer to laugh. I'm hoping none of them are in accounting. (laughs) But anyway, healthcare is a big issue in our country these days. I knew that it would come to this. Hospitals are now resorting to hiring doctors. We have some folks in our church that are headed to China next week uh, to to do some touring. I've given them a a suggestion because uh, new information has emerged with that country with whom, as you know, we're in a bit of a a, a difficult time with right now. But China may be using the sea to hide its submarines. (laughs) Sneaky Chinese government. Last Sunday in the paper, this was the headline. Denver area has a target on it. You know, um, those other headlines were powerful headlines. I mean, um, they, it's kind of interesting how we as human beings work. I mean, you know, we're concerned about things like uh, death and dying. We're concerned about things like population growth and how that impacts uh, uh, our environment, our industries, jobs, all those, health care. <clears throat> we're concerned about issues of literacy and education. We're, considered about, we're concerned about math skills in our nation. Health care, big issue. Even the struggle that we're currently having with other nations on, with regard to the military and trade, etc., And yet, at the same time, all of these things, even though they're significantly important, and the content in those articles are significantly important, it's a little easier to read those and maybe even laugh and poke fun at them from a distance until we get to this one. And this one's a little harder to do, isn't it? You see, this headline impacts our neighborhood less than a mile down the road is the scene of the STEM school shooting. You know folks who are part of that school. Some of you even know the friends and families of both shooters and victim alike. Suddenly, the headlines get very, very personal. Remember when we first looked at the book of Revelation, And we prefaced what we were saying about it was that it was written by John, the last surviving disciple, that he's writing this having been exiled to an island in the Aegean Sea just off the coast of Turkey, 
uh, between Turkey and Greece, present-day Turkey and Greece. And it was an island that the Roman government <clears throat> in the first and second and third century used to exile uh, political enemies of, the, of Rome. They, they couldn't uh, execute them, or if their crimes weren't significant enough, they sent them to Patmos. And, and Patmos became an, an island of, of prisoners. And John has been sent to Patmos, and from this island of Patmos, he is writing this letter, this book of Revelation, this, this uh, written account of the vision that he has received from none other than the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. And he has gone through all of Revelation, and if you took the time from a couple weeks ago when I preached on Revelation chapter 7, and you read all of the stuff in between Revelation, when you get to chapter 21, probably the one thing you're mainly good looking forward to is the fact that the book's almost over, because there's been a ton of stuff in the middle there that has just been kind of confusing and difficult. If you're in a small group, and I pray that you are, and if you're not, I hope that you can get into one. There's a pamphlet of small groups on our Welcome Center out in the lobby. If uh, You can speak to Pastor Joe. He was the uh, big, good-looking fellow that was up here earlier. Get you plugged in. Because in those questions that are coming up for this coming week, there, there is a, some discussion, not much, but some discussion on all the stuff that's happened in the middle. As a matter of fact, uh, this past Wednesday night at... Uh, at um, our Wednesday night study that Pastor Joe and I have been alternating, uh, the one question that came up was, can you explain the book of Revelation to us in 20 minutes? And um, I appreciate the fact that you're engaged with this, but I want you just to remember the context that this letter is being written. These folks are suffering. The, the Christians in the first century, the end of the first century, are suffering intense persecution for their faith. And although... For the most part, I'm pretty sure of this, that when you and I leave this building today, we will not be met at the door by federal or state officials to haul us off to jail because we're followers of Jesus Christ. But you know, although it's not covered in the mainstream media, you know that today, this past week, Christians throughout the world are suffering horrible persecution. Christians are being shot and bombed simply because they believe that Jesus is the Christ. Children are being massacred. Christian children are being massacred because of their faith and the faith of their parents. In Pakistan, Christians are being arrested because, because they refuse to uh, affirm the positions of another religion. They're charged with blasphemy an executable offense in that nation. And even if they're found not guilty by the courts, as some were this past week and the week before, they cannot return to their homes or their villages for fear of retribution and even murder. And so because of these false charges, they have to leave their country, their neighborhood, their families, their friends, and move to a completely different country in order to live. Though that's not our experience, it's the experience of Christians throughout the world. Now, before we allow ourselves to be immersed into some sort of righteousness or righteous rage or righteous anger, I remember an old preacher who once prayed something along these lines, Lord, where Christians are persecuted, give them strength and courage. And where Christians are the persecutors... 
Give them a spirit of repentance. The writer of Revelation doesn't pull any punches. And as we're coming now to the end of this book, as we're coming now uh, to, to, to a, a vision of, of hope, a, a vision of, of, of peace, a, a vision of somehow all of the horrible things in life will soon come to an end, within the midst of those words of encouragement are statements of reality. God is speaking through the Word, through Jesus to John as he has been ushered into the very throne room of grace and now is witnessing the consummation of the end of age. And he says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And and that small sentence is an awareness of hope, but also of reality. That there will come a day when the tears will be wiped away, but there's also an acceptance that our life today involves tears. Yesterday, my wife and I and, and, and our uh, children decided to go out for a walk. Our, our son and our daughter, our youngest daughter, was in the stroller just because she walks too slow. And uh, our, others, our other daughter and son were riding their bicycles, and we were on a graveled path. And, and Isaac's tires lost traction, and he went down and uh, tore his knee up and it was bleeding profusely and and me recognizing that as a parent I carry you know the 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 image of God the authority of God I said shake it off and get up <laughs> not really sure how he's going to grow up <laughs> my wife of course ran over and in the midst of that moment as she wiped the blood from his knee with her sweater That's what you moms do. You all don't care how expensive that sweater was. I saw the divine hand of God in maternal form as she took her thumb and wiped the tear from his cheek. Now, I would have done that too if it was our daughter's, but our son, I couldn't do it. (laughs) The writer of Revelation goes on, and he he gives us uh, more words of encouragement. He says, death shall be no more. So there, again, there's that hope of, 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 of relief, but there's also an awareness that this life, there is death. In this life, there is mourning. In this life, there is pain. We've all experienced death, the loss of our parents, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child for some of us. I remember some of those experiences, the loss of my father. When he was in the hospital, he asked my mother, he said, Murray? My mother's name is Mary. I didn't know that until I was 10. (laughs) I thought my mom had a guy's name. Murray, take me home. And she took him home. And later that morning, when she called me to tell me that my father had died, she said that she just sat with him on the bed. The last words out of his mouth, they're not any different than words that you've probably heard from your family. They are eternal, it seems. 
My father said, Murray, tell Isaac, that's me, that's my real name, tell Isaac I love him, and I love you. And my mother said that in the moments following that statement, his face and body racked with stiffness and pain, suddenly he relaxed. He looked up, and as if he was aware that an old friend had come to see him, he smiled and died. You've had those experiences too, I'm sure. And if you haven't, you will. There is a day coming, we're told, that there'll be no mourning, that there'll be no pain. And in the midst of these, the writer John, the revelator, says that then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I'm always perplexed about that, 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 that word new. New is an interesting word, isn't it? My wife keeps telling me I should get a new truck. I don't want a new truck. I like my old truck. It's getting more expensive than a new truck would be, but it's still my old truck. I remember the first Sunday that I came here, y'all were worried. Uh-oh, there's the new preacher. What new things is the new preacher going to bring? For some of us, that was an exciting thing. For others of you, not so much. You see, the word new carries different meanings depending on where we are, you see. See, if we're in a position where we're tired, if we're in a position where we're mourning, if we're in a position where we're racked with pain, if we're in a position where we're, we're seeing things not get done the way we want them to get done, we look forward to the new. The new programs, the new sheriff in town, the, the new pastor, the new job, the, the new employee. But when things are going just the way we like them, when we, when we have a semblance of control in our life, when we think that we have a life like a tiger by the tail, when we hear the words new, we're not so excited about it anymore. Well, well wait a minute. What, why do we need to change this? Things are going just fine. And yet in the midst of this, and I'm not, I don't necessarily have any sort of encouragement for you. I just want us to be aware of how we are feeling and what we're thinking when we hear this word new. I remember when I was 14 years old and uh, Pastor Chuck Strickler, who was the preacher at Snow Hill Christian Church, uh, he said, there's a day coming when Jesus will return and all things will be new. Now I'm 14 years old. And he's like, you need to be praying with me, church, for the coming of the Lord. And so I bowed my head and I said, Lord, please come after I turn 16. Because <laughs> you see, I wanted to drive. Every 14-year-old who, who had, every, you remember when you were 14, you wanted to drive before Jesus came back. And then when you got to be 17, you said to yourself, I pray that the Lord will come back after I graduate high school. Or after the prom, or after I go to college and experience that for just a year or two, I've heard what wonderful things college can be, and all the wonderful social gatherings, you know, and the beverages that are served, and uh, these are the things that I want, Lord. If you could just come, but not until I 
meet that special man or special woman, not until we have children, not until I get the job that I want, not until my hopes and dreams are fulfilled. Praying for the coming of Christ is an interesting prayer. It's easy to pray for the end of things when things are not going so well. I wonder how the prayers of Christians in Pakistan differ from the prayers of Christians in the United States. I wonder how the prayers of Christians in China differ from the prayers of folks at South Suburban Christian Church. A new heaven and a new earth. Maybe what would be helpful is for us to take a long, difficult look at the way the world is today. Yesterday, 56 men, 56 men gathered for our brotherhood breakfast and listened to Dr. Jeff Brodsky talk about human trafficking here in the United States. Over 200,000 children in slavery in the United States. And you know what kind of slavery I'm talking about, too, don't you? 200,000. I can only imagine, as I was listening to that Dr. Brodsky talk, I can only imagine I had such horrible images in my mind of those individuals who kidnap or, 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 or seduce those children into a life without hope and meaning, a life of slavery. I wonder what it's going to be like when they stand before the throne of God. When God says, that was my child, you did that too. But then I couldn't help. And men, those of you who were there, you can probably agree with me. After the presentation was over, I was a little worried about how I would feel when I stand before the throne of God and God says, my children were in slavery, Ike. What did you do to help them? Suddenly, praying for a new heaven and a new earth gets a little bit easier. And although artists and illustrators try to show us the beauty of what a new heaven will be and what a new earth will be, matter of fact, I asked, if you're in a small group, one of the group questions that you're going to get is, uh, is a difficult question that I had trouble answering, so I'm going to let you answer it. You all tell me what the answer is, will you, next week? And that is, is that, what do you want in heaven that you already have here. I mean, for example, I mean, if there's no golf in heaven, are you interested in going? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm expecting, you know, on that great banquet table, you know, the old preachers would talk about that great banquet table when you walk into heaven. I'm wondering what's on that bank banquet table because if there's tomato aspic or stuffed grape leaves, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> and we begin in these moments to think about the kingdom of God. We begin in these moments to think about the kingdom of heaven. What's that like? How, how, do, we, how do we do this? What are, the, what are the signs of this? I mean, as a matter of fact, when, when the revelator talks about uh, this image as he's watching the great consummation, the apocalypse, when he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven, what's that look like? This is what it looked like in the 14th century in France. This is a tapestry in a cathedral from a, from a 14th century church in France. There's John off to the side and, 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 a, and a medieval-looking city coming out of the kingdom. I'm going to have to tell you, this does absolutely nothing for me. 
But for the ancients who were reading this text, for the people who were hearing about the holy city, that was the center of their world. That was the center of their faith. It it is where David established uh, the city. It it is where Solomon built the temple. It's where Isaac was almost uh, 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 sacrificed. It's where Jesus Christ himself was crucified. It's where he was raised again. That holy city of Jerusalem is the center of the world. It's the symbol of all of who they are. Not only as a people, but within a certain ethnic group or or a nationality, but as the people of God. What is the symbol in your life? What is it that speaks to the fullness of God's reign and God's kingdom in your life, in this nation, in our world? John the Revelator goes on and he says, it's sort of like a, a bride prepared, adorned for her husband. Now, some of that might have been a bad day for some of you. I don't know. And the second one might have even been worse, and the third one wasn't much better, and it wasn't until you got the fourth one and you said, okay, we can work with this one. But if you think, you know, in the ancient times, no matter how poor you were, the wedding day was the one thing that money absolutely meant nothing. You would spend everything that you had in order to make that day perfect. Now, some of you dads I can see are already nodding. Yeah, I've already done that. I'm thinking about my own life. I mean, what are some of the instances in my life when I would say money has, is no option? If, if my children were injured and they needed a, a life-giving surgery or a life-giving treatment, if my wife was injured and needed a surgery that we couldn't afford, what would I say to the physician, to the surgeon? I don't care how much it costs. Do it. I'll figure out a way to pay you. I promise. But we don't typically think about those things when it comes to good things, do we? I mean, you know, none of us have walked onto the, uh, a lot of a dealership and said, that's the truck I want. I don't care how much it costs. I'm going home with, well, maybe one or two of you did, and your wives are still angry at you over it. <laughs> but you understand that in the lives of the readers, that phrase is a phrase of there, there is absolutely no cost that would prevent me from getting ready for this day. I mean, the image of, of, of the father of the bride and the father of the groom, months, maybe even years of negotiations and preparations. This is the time when we're launching this couple into their own life for their own hopes, their own dreams, uh, th- their own family. This is something that it doesn't matter what it will cost me. I want them, my children, to experience the greatness of that day of what it means and the future that it will bring. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we sometimes get caught up in what that means. We might view the kingdom of God as something that I have to help build. As a matter of fact, it was actually a part of early 19th and late 19th century understanding of Christianity that it was our job to build the kingdom. And all kinds of competing images and, and philosophies came to play in that midst. And so building the kingdom of God you know, meant for this group of people to be able to vote, for this group of people to be able to eat, or for this group of people to be able to have equal rights and the access to, to the same things that everybody... And, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, but I, I'm not sure that's how the Bible understands the kingdom of God. Now, it's easy for us to say... 
Those of us who are in positions of relative ease or we don't worry about where our next meal will come from or we're not worrying about whether or not our rights are going to be taken away from us or opportunities will elude us. But my effort here is to just present you what the biblical understanding of the kingdom is. And for most of us, when we think of the king and, and, or a queen, a monarch or a kingdom, we think of an individual who has authority over a particular, particular geographical area. And there's another monarch over there that has uh, uh, authority over that geographical area. And when those two monarchs are getting along, things are great. <clears throat> when they're not getting along, we send our sons and daughters to war against each other. But that's not how the Bible understands kingdom. As a matter of fact, this perhaps is the second most important thing I'm going to share with you today. And that is is that the kingdom in the Bible means God's reign, not God's realm. That is is that God is is not the king of just South Suburban Christian Church. God is not the king of just... Christianity as a whole. God God is not the king of just one particular nation or one particular civilization or one particular time in human history. But God is the king over the entirety of the universe, over all things. You you, you might have heard the old joke. I don't know if you have, you know, a pastor walking down a country road day after day and he sees a field filled with weeds and he's just perplexed at this field that no one seems to tend until one day a farmer purchases it and he spends all of his time out in the field and he's pulling the weeds and tilling the soil and preparing it and planting seeds. And then the next season, as the pastor is walking down the road, the field is filled with, with uh, plants that are producing fruit and, 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 and it's fruitful. And the pastor stops and he says to the farmer, God sure has blessed you with this piece of land. And the farmer says, you should have seen it when God was taking care of it by himself. And all of us think about it that way, and yet we don't think about the fact that the field actually belongs to God, that the seed belongs to God, that the rain that watered the ground belongs to God, even the muscles and the sinews that made the hose and the rakes and turned the soil and tilled it all belong to God. You and I are a part of the reign of God. We are the subjects, we are the property, we belong to God. One of the early movers and shakers of the Christian church movement was a guy named Alexander Campbell. And Alexander Campbell, in one of the chapters of a book called The Christian System, which was a synopsis and summary of his understanding of the Christian faith, he says this, he says, a monarchy would always be the best government. Now, see, some of you, I can tell already, are a little nervous. A monarchy is the most efficient. It is the most dignified. But then Campbell adds this, provided only, provided only that the crown was placed on the wisest head and the scepter wielded by the purest hands. I don't know about you, but I don't know the wisest head. I don't know the purest hands to carry the scepter of a monarchy, save God and God alone. Now, I, I told, Campbell goes on to talk, and, and the first service didn't think this was funny. Almost, so you need to laugh whether you think it's funny or not. Because Campbell goes on to say, and he says, Therefore, 
all good Christians ought to be good Republicans. Okay, that laughter was worse than the first service. Well, by that, he doesn't mean the party. He means the system of government. And even though that joke bombed entirely, I do want to say to you, it is often difficult for we as Americans who have been raised in this concept of the democratic republic to understand our relationship with God as not a commonwealth. This isn't God's commonwealth. It's not God's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. It's his and his alone. And we are his and his alone. It is for us to bow the head and bend the knee. And yet when I say that to you, there's a part of your heart that reacts viscerally negative against that. And I think it's rooted more in our misunderstanding of God's kingdom versus the kingdoms of human beings. It's our misunderstanding of what it means when, when God talks about being the monarch of our life and a reprobate man or woman declares themselves the monarch of our life. For God is the kingdom like a mother's hand that reaches down and wipes away the tear from a little boy's face. God's monarchy is the kind of monarchy that he takes the battered and the abused and holds them close and protects them. God's monarchy is a monarchy that raises up men like the Brotherhood Ministry at South Suburban Christian Church that says we may not be able to save all of them, but we know we can save one, maybe two. And we will not be people, as Dr. Jeff said, who are informed and do nothing at all, for that is a sign of our apathy and not of our courage. If, as we sang earlier, there is no wall that God won't kick down, then there is nothing that will prevent us from being the kingdom of God. Because that perhaps is the most important thing I hope you'll leave here today with. That the kingdom of God is to be received. And what do I mean by that? Have you ever read or heard of a monarch who said, I hope you'll let me be your monarch? They don't do that, do they? They say, guess what? I'm your new king. I'm your new queen. Here's my army to enforce it. But the king that we follow says, I will not force you to submit but I invite you to submit. And when we kneel, King Jesus lifts us up and invites us to stand. He reminds us by the writer of the Hebrews that when we walk into the throne of grace, we walk with boldness in the presence of God. You see, the kingdom of God, according to John, as he's revealing to us, is not a kingdom of, 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 a, of oppression. It's not an autocracy. It's not a, a kingdom that says you will submit. It is a kingdom that invites us into relationship. And the kingdom of God is not a kingdom that we build, 
but it is that which God builds in us. This morning, as we were getting ready for church this morning, our children were brushing their teeth without having been asked. They made their beds without us having to nag them. I'm lying, by the way. And as my wife, well, as I was sitting in the living room, you know, getting ready, getting my mind, thinking high and lofty and holy thoughts, she was in the trenches. She was on the battlefield trying to get our three kids ready for church this morning. And I thought to myself, why do I love my wife? Do I love my wife because she takes care of all my needs and makes wonderful meals and makes sure that my shirts are pressed and I'm going to get emails over this, aren't I? Do I love my wife because she takes care of the kids so I don't have to? Do I love my wife for what she gives to me? Do I love my wife that she eases my frustrations and eases my pain? And the answer is no. That's not why I love my wife. Now, I may take advantage of those things, but that's not why I love her. You know why I love her? I just like being with her. As a matter of fact, if it were between you and her, I would pick her to be with. I just like being in her presence. I, I like who she is. I, I love her heart. I love her mind. I, I love her insight. I, I love her ideas. I, I love our conversation. I mean, that's one of the things we miss the most after having kids. We used to talk all the time. And now we get moments between children's demands. That's what I love about her. Now let me ask you this. First of all, if that's not how your marriage is, you need to make an appointment with Pastor Joe this week. <laughs> but second of all, if that is how your marriage is, then why would your relationship with God be any different? Are you in a relationship with God for what you will get out of it? Are you in a relationship with God simply because it's awesome to be in a relationship with God? And God invites you, brothers and sisters, to receive it. You see, the kingdom of God is already here. We don't need to wait for the pain to go away. We don't need to wait for the mourning to subside. We don't even need to wait for death and the afterlife. Because the kingdom of God isn't about all of those things. Those things are simply a result of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is about being in a relationship with God through Christ. Now, how does the Bible encourage us to do that? Paul says in the book of Romans, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. And I hope today that if there's been someone here who the Holy Spirit has spoken to and you have said, I believe, that after our service you'll come and speak to an elder and with your mouth say, I believe. And I receive. And let us work with you to begin you on this new life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been inviting folks to come to the pulpit. I'd like to invite uh, Angela and Harry to come forward right now, who are sharing a little bit about how God has been faithful in the life of South Suburban Church. It's always easy to focus on the hard things, to focus on the pain, to focus on the death, to focus on the mourning. But the truth that John is trying to reveal to us is what we need to be focusing on is that God never abandons us. 
God never leaves us. Thanks. Um, well, when Pastor Ike first asked us to speak about God's faithfulness in our lives, the first thought that came to my mind was, uh, you know, looking at my childhood growing up, um, I was a military brat and moved a lot. Uh, and through all of 20 plus moves, um, you know, God was there. He was present, even when I wasn't looking for him. Um, I've, I've only been to one retreat here at South Suburban, uh, one men's retreat, and, uh, you know, God was present there. Um, it was evidenced by, uh, by not only the beauty of the surroundings out there at Estes Park, but also by, uh, by, by the fellowship of, of the brotherhood and the men I was surrounded by. Um, you know, you could see him um, at, at work in, in people's lives there. Um, it was just a, a, a great event, time to relax and reflect and, and uh, look back on all those times when I was looking for him and maybe didn't see him or um, looking for him and he was steadfast in there and, uh, and uh, with me through it all. Um, trying to think of, uh, basically, it, it gives me great comfort and peace to know that I can take all these burdens that we have to shoulder in today's world and know that I don't have to go it alone, that I've got his um, presence as well as the support of my wife um, to get through it all. So uh, his faithfulness is uh, truly a, a blessing. Well, when I was asked to speak about retreat, my first thought was, how was I going to do that in a few minutes? Um, because it's really near and dear to my heart, and I have a passion for um, sisterhood ministry here at South Suburban. The scripture that came to my mind was Matthew 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, he had dismissed them, and he said, I'm going to go to the mountain, and I'm going to pray with my Father. And to me, what that tells me is that we all need to go to the mountain, we all need to retreat and have prayer with our Father because He desires that with us. He desires that we will be in a relationship with Him. He's chosen us. He pursues you. The God of the universe pursues us. What a beautiful picture that is for me. And as I think back in the 14 years of retreat, I think of the first time God pursued me. I was sitting here and the retreat was announced, and I thought, i got to go. I don't know people in this church. I've got to go. And I showed up in my uncertainty and my anxiety about it a little bit, my excitement too, but God met me right there. The next year, he said, oh, Angela, you're going to go to retreat, but you're going to do more than just go. You're going to now be part of the music team. Okay, God. And you know what? He met me again. And then he said, Angela, we need a leader. Oh, okay, God, you're stretching and growing me a little too much here. But you know what he did? He met me again. And he gave me this co-leader, Kathy Eichen, and we partnered together. And we walked through it, blessed beyond. And then in the last several years, he said, You've been in my word for a long time, but now it's time for you to share it. So he said, you're not going to just lead and do music, but you're going to speak. 
five sessions. Do a communion service. And you're going to share my word. And you're going to show them how God empowers you to share his word. And you know what? He met me again. And he just keeps on meeting me over and over. See, he wants relationship with us. He wants to pursue each and every one of you. Don't shy away from that. Embrace it. Because he's going to take you from here to way beyond. Never in my mind did I think, sitting in these pews in 2005, that I would be preparing to venture out into a new season of my life in speaking to women's groups. That wasn't even on my radar. I still don't know what that looks like. But I know in my journey, he will meet me. Trust that he will. He is faithful, and he has seen this church through hard times in the last several years. But he is faithful. Remember that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our Father, we thank you. But even when we haven't been able to perceive your presence, you have never abandoned us. Thank you. Even when our minds have been filled with doubt, you have whispered words of assurance in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we know that the kingdom begins when we receive you as the king of our lives. And we pray that today, everyone who has done that would renew that covenant from this moment on. And that if there be one person here who hasn't, that this would be the day they would say, Lord, I bow the head, I bend my knee, and I accept you as my sovereign, as my Lord, and as my Savior. May we confess that with our mouths. May we confess that with our deeds. And may you, King Jesus, receive all glory, honor, and praise from our hearts, from our minds, from our words, from all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.